Welcome back to Drake Art Diaries. Now, a few weeks ago, what is it now? Two weeks ago? Ooh, two weeks ago, yeah, I think. Yes, weeks. gosh. Two weeks ago. Seems like I yesterday. I spoke to, I call him our postman, but he's so much more. He's our friend, Ian McLaughlin. Before he set off on what is commonly known as the toughest race on earth, the Marathon de Sable. It was, if my facts are right, 270k over seven days, which is equivalent basically to a London marathon a day for seven days, in extraordinary conditions, including heat and carrying your entire supplies on your backs as you ran this race. So Ian McLaughlin, first of all, from, from Drake Up Diaries, welcome back. Can I tell everybody that Ian walked through the door with his normal bounce in his step. So what I can see through my eyesight, you're looking very well in. Welcome back. Tiggy, thank you. Um, I'm not so sure about normal bounce. Um, it, it's, all, it's all a ruse, a, a disguise. And, okay. and not quite as much bounce, but it's all coming back quite quickly. So that's very encouraging. Good, good. Unlike me, I'm going to shut up for a while and let you tell oh. us your story because it's an extraordinary story. We'd love to hear right from the beginning, you know, what it was like when you arrived, because I know you, you went to Tunisia, didn't you? Uh, Morocco. Oh, Morocco. Yep. I do apologise. What on earth has been going on for the last two weeks of your life? Where to start? Well, um, I suppose the simplest place to start would be the journey across there and um, our arrival in Wazazat. When you say our arrival, were you travelling with oh, Chris Hewitt? Yes, Hewitt? sorry. Um, my running partner in crime, Chris. Chris and I, as some of you may know, met um, probably six months ago. Um, I have delivered his post, which was where we initially made contact, <laughs> and uh, a couple of casual discussions in the street about the running trainers he happened to be wearing is what started to establish something of a, a friendship with him. And then he discovered that I was also entered with this stupidity across the Sahara and gave me a call and said, Mac, would you like to meet up for a coffee? Because we may be able to link up and train and work together as we prepare for this thing. So the, the we that I refer to quite often will be Chris and I. Um, as I may have said earlier, the pair of us entered for a solitary adventure, but it really did become a story of two separate adventures, his and mine, and then our combined adventures along the way. So it would have been Chris and I that set off from Gatwick on... Um, and Chris, may I just interject, yes. is a paramedic? Yes, Chris okay. is a paramedic of uh, 21 years' worth of experience in his field. Um, a remarkable guy, a very modest man. Yeah, I think I've acquired another another brother, um, much to his horror, through, throughout the process. But I'm very, very glad to have met him and hooked up with him because... Um, as you'll probably discover throughout the journey, um, there were times when we leant quite heavily on each other. Um, so it was good to have his company, and I'd like to hope that he feels the same way about mine as well. But yes, Chris and I set off um, on a Titan air flight from Gatwick, heading out to Wazazat, which is in Morocco. It was um, a funny old journey being back on an aircraft um, and having to sit for three and a half hours w with a mask on. But I'm sure many of the, the, the listeners, as it were, would be familiar with this if they have been able to travel. And uh, arriving and touching down and stepping off the aircraft into a very, very hot Moroccan, what was meant to be autumn winter, 
but it turned out to be that they were having a heat wave, so it felt quite a lot warmer than that. The adventure started with quite a few hiccups, which um, nearly saw me back on an aircraft and heading back home on the same day because I'd made an error in filling in my 48-hour pre-departure COVID check. I got the dates wrong. So when I presented my papers to step out of the airport and head for the buses, I was hauled one side and informed that my tests were invalid and I'd have to be subject to further tests, which I didn't mind too much. I'd made the mistake and there was no point arguing about it. Mm. And so I was sat down on my own in the sun next to the medical tent and duly swabbed, etc., and then waited for the results to come through. The bulk of the folk, the volunteers, the doctors, the support staff were all French. And my French, my, my English is limited as it is, never mind my French. And the only words that I could make out in the discussions of these doctors and nurses around the table was the word positive. And I thought, this can't be right. I've flown several thousand miles. I've spent 18 months preparing for this thing to be told that I'm now positive for COVID. Um, and, and a whole lot of thoughts went through my mind. It was quite an anxious time. I was then informed that I would need to have a second test. Uh, it's quite difficult to tell you what was going through my mind at that point. Um, it was probably the want to weep, shout, or, or run off in the direction of the desert and, and sneak off to the start without anyone knowing in equal measure. But um, a second test was duly conducted and um, there was um, a queue of my newly made friends and fellow athletes um, all lining up and hopping onto the buses and um, there were some very unhelpful comments um, from them recommending uh, the Chinese method of uh, COVID testing which unfortunately, and I apologise for more sensitive viewers, but involves a, a rectal swab. <laughs> and uh, whilst they found this terribly amusing, I can assure you that um, uh, swabbing anywhere um, and positive uh, reactions to a test w was not top of my agenda of funny. It was the longest 10 minutes of my life sat there waiting for this test to register and the more I looked at this little device that was going to tell me yay or nay, sat alongside the previous one that had said nay, the more they looked similar. And I thought, well, if I've got COVID and they've found it now, brilliant, because at least I could be sparing my own life, not to mention some of the other athletes. But in equal measure, the disappointment of having to hop on an aircraft and arrive back in Draycott the following day and say, well, this is it, folks. I didn't make it for the following reasons. The lady doctor counted down to the appointed second at which this test would now be revealed. And um, there were more people gathering around and staring over her shoulder. And uh, the more nervous I got and the longer it seemed to take. You've no idea that 10 seconds can last almost an hour. But um, as we, of course, all know now, that the test turned out to be negative and the first one was a false positive. Oh. And so I was duly able to join the queue and head past the display of drum beating and dancing natives um, and find my place <laughs> on the bus. So uh, a relief beyond relief. And okay. I said to many at that point, if that's the worst that can happen to me, I'm afraid of nothing. <laughs> I was wrong. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but that was the start. Okay, so this is the start of the seven-day journey. Yes. Okay, so your first night was where? They bust us out into the Sahara. Uh, I, I couldn't begin to tell you where, and if I did, there's a pretty good chance I wouldn't be able to pronounce it. But it was an hour out of the, uh, the airport, uh, and, uh, sorry, it was actually Irashidia, my apologies, that we flew into, not Wazazat. Wazazat was the place that we flew okay. out from. 
I'm getting my maths all wrong because initially we were meant to fly into Wazazat and out from Ereshidia and at some point they changed that around. Okay, okay. So an hour out into the desert and we, they call it a bivouac, posh name I suppose for um, tents in the middle of the Sahara, but that was our first and second night okay. out there. And you say, um, Ian, I know we're going we're gonna to get into the race in a minute, but I know you had to carry all your own food supplies uh, for the seven days. But that night, and indeed before you started the next day, you were telling me that you had to have quite a lot of technical devices put on you. Is that right? Or you had to check some technical device so that you could be tracked and indeed safe? They did what they called pre-race checks which involved quite a few things, one of which was um, weighing our, our race bags to ensure that we were within the prescribed parameters of 6.5 to 15 kilograms, and also to check that we had the right kit with us, to check that we had the right amount of food with us, and um, also to, to tag us with um, a GPS tracking device which mounted on our bag on our shoulder. Two important reasons for that. One is that they could always see where we were, and there was also an SOS button which we could press if we felt that we were in a position where our life was in danger or threatened because we were ill or the heat or something like that had got to us. So we had to undergo those checks and balances at which they checked our medical checks which we'd had done in the UK and they scrutinised our ECG printouts just to make sure that our tickers were ticking. So those were the first tests and, and hurdles that we needed to kind of hop through before we'd even got near the race and at that point we could sense just how hot it was beginning because we spent a lot of time standing around in the sun and the temperatures then were already uh, well into the 40s which um, was quite a bit more than the tourist brochures and TripAdvisor and Google had told me. And in these bivouacs the night before in, were you, how many runners were there in the race to start with? There were 674 were you all sharing tents? I mean, were you? Was it like a dormitory of runners and this place preparing to set off the next day? Uh, a picture would probably describe it better, and I'll try and paint one for you. It was a little bit like the shape of a moon, in two rows of tents at the outer perimeter, with a bite taken out of um, the middle of it, so that you could access the centre ground, and also, of course, from there, the admin and medical tents. Sure. And it was a series of, um, I think they call them Berber tents, which really was little more than um, a large piece of canvas held up by poles. And um, they were open-sided, so wind, weather, elements and creepy crawlies had relatively free access. And of course the athletes, um, some of which probably passed for creepy crawlies as well, because standing and walking became difficult at some point. So you only had that one night before you started the race? We actually had two. Oh, two nights, um, okay. So let's get to the, to the night where you're going to be running, start the run, because mm. if memory served when we last talked, Ian, you were going to set off in the very early morning when it was cool. So tell us about that start and the times. We, we were meant to start at nine o'clock every morning. Um, not entirely sure about the coolness of things because at nine o'clock in the morning it was already quite warm. And given that we were experiencing a heat wave, which was unplanned for and unanticipated, it certainly felt a lot warmer, so you could feel the heat on you from quite early. In fact, 
we had sleeping bags which I didn't use at all. I slept on top of for the duration because it was still so warm at night and that was a clue possibly as to what awaited us the next day. But we were due to start at nine o'clock and it was pretty much the drill for every day that we would all drag ourselves off to the start line. And all of the announcements were made um, first in French and then there was a translator telling, um, telling the whole story in English which took up quite a lot of time and I don't think we once started at nine o'clock. It was more likely anywhere between quarter past and half past nine. I'm really surprised. I would have thought they would have started it earlier. So did you all start in one big group or did you go off in tranches? On four of the six days we all started together. Um, days one, two and three being the first hundred odd kilometres. We then established a pecking order or a ranking for the long stage, which was just over 50 miles. And what they did for that was um, they allowed us mere mortals to start early. And the top 50 men and the top 50 female athletes set off roughly three hours behind us. It was actually quite a good idea because it was incredibly encouraging and inspiring. You know, dragging our weary bodies across the dunes and all the rest of it to see these fresh-looking athletes gazelles come, running yes past i'm skipping past like gazelles um it, it was absolutely amazing but also greatly inspiring and encouraging in equal measure but it gave us the chance to see the stars doing their thing which was marvelous and did you and was the plan and did you manage to stay with chris throughout the rest because chris hewitt your running yeah. partner that we talked about earlier were you able to be together or did you split up during the race Chris and I knew that we both had very different strengths and weaknesses heading into the race. And we had discussed this probably 20, 30 times on our various runs as to what the structure of our respective races would be. And we'd loosely thought that we would probably spend more time together than we thought we would, and we did. But we also recognised that um, with each other's strengths and weaknesses, holding back at certain times probably wouldn't make sense at all. For example... I'm a lot better than Chris at running on sand and I've spent an awful lot of time at the beach on Burnham running up and down the dunes there and it's nothing more than a matter of Chris's schedule which saw that he wasn't always able to spend the time he would want to there. He's a very fit man but it's quite a different set of skills required for running on sand. We knew that there would be times when we would be apart and there were so um, I think it was probably a 50-50 split in terms of time spent together because there would often have been times when, given the terrain we were on, as it suited one or the other, or where we were at um, physically and mentally, it would have been better for one to go ahead of the other. But we, we actually quite often caught up and found each other along oh, the way. Oh, that must be lovely. We'll talk about individual days um, because obviously, you know, we've got seven days of, gosh, I can only imagine the, the pain were you each day, what was the routine of the day? Would you at every sort of so many K have a, a point that you checked in? And when you got to the end of each day, did you all go back into this configuration where you all slept under these sort of half moon tents? The distances throughout any day were divided into checkpoints, which were roughly eight miles apart, which it sounds quite easy when you compare it to local conditions to carry the right amount of water, etc., with you. But um, when temperatures were as high as what they were, we pretty soon realised that we needed to manage ourselves very carefully. We needed to manage our resources in terms of water and um, electrolytes, food, salt tablets, 
but we also needed to manage ourselves physically insofar as the pace we were doing. I got caught out, but I was lucky. Many athletes got caught out by not doing that carefully enough and had to drop out. So every eight miles there was the opportunity to get more water and that was rationed. Either one and a half or three litres depending on what the organisers viewed the next stretch to require. This of course was um, improved into day three when they realised um, the impact. Well, I wouldn't say they realised the impact at that point, but when um, we recognised just how hot it was. So the rationing was part of the progression to see how tough you were in the race. Uh, is that why they rationed it? Yes. Um, okay, because, it, because of its name being the toughest journey. You know, it wasn't, wasn't that they were being mean, it was that that was part of the competition. Yes. Um, it, it's labelled as the toughest foot race on earth and there was a thought deep within me and perhaps a few of the other athletes that this was just a marketing thing in order to attract um, the adrenaline junkies and the foolish in equal measure. Um, I'm not quite sure which category of those I fall into but those sorts of wordings create something of an aura around the adventure which would attract people to want to test themselves and to challenge themselves. I must add that whilst there was a challenge in managing yourself, particularly in relation to the amount of water we were allowed or rationed, we would never have been stopped from acquiring extra water sure, if sure. we'd wanted. In indeed. Ye indeed. Yes. And we would probably have incurred a 30-minute time penalty for every extra litre and a half of water we received or an hour time penalty for every drip that we received. Indeed, at but the it checkpoint. was available if it was needed. It, it was available if it was needed. Um, the, the challenge was often a personal one and a personal decision. Do I try and manage myself and my resources carefully and, and make it work taking the risk? Or do I just say, I'll take the penalty now, I'll take the water now, and we can argue about um, the penalty at okay, some point later? So let's just talk about the temperatures in, because this race... It, it, they had to move it back, didn't they, because of COVID. And the temperatures are normally around the 40s mark. Now, right. from the small amount of research I've done, it seems that they were sometimes in their 50s yes. and above. Yes. So this was a shock for you and for the organisers. So how did you deal with that? Tiggy, I think what perhaps caught, um, I'm going to say a few of the athletes short, um, the organisers would probably have seen the challenge maybe differently but also certainly seen it. With the move from April to October, October in theory is meant to be the cooler month. Um, all of the research indicates, as you've already said, that um, the April challenge um, with temperatures in the 40s should in theory have been a much warmer challenge than the one in October. And the, the tourist brochures and, and all the research I did on Tinterweb suggested an average maximum high in October of 28 Celsius. No. And they recommend it as um, the best time to go and see these parts of the desert um, for, for your average tourist. I, and probably everyone else there, was expecting those sorts of temperatures, which seemed to be very doable when you consider that we'd had um, a heat wave um, probably a month or so prior, which saw temperatures in the 30s. Yeah. So when I went out there, I thought, gosh, I've been through way more extremes just in this country and I should be prepared for it. However, as you've indicated, a heat wave came along and temperatures were, were well into the 50s. I'm repeating a story I was told by one of um, our media friends, um, a British gentleman, um, who said that a, a temperature of 62 Celsius had been recorded in the dunes on day two. It's un, un, unratified or unverified, so I, I don't want to tell untruths. Okay. 
but okay. it was certainly exceptionally hot. The recorded temperatures were up in and around 56, so it's very likely that there would have been temperatures in and around the 62 Celsius on that particular day. And that brought challenges with it all of its own, which really meant we had to be super careful and clever about how we managed our hydration as we went along. Mm. Well, obviously, this is a, so, so much of a longer conversation than we're going to have a chance for this morning, but we know you as a, a man that's extraordinarily planned, so we know that you would be in the right kit with everything going along. Mm. Even so, during those seven days, there was a horrendous <coughs> experience that you witnessed, and I wondered whether you felt you could share that with us, because... All back this end, we were sort of tracking you. And can I say a very special thank you to Craig here, your friend? Yes, Craig Cooper. Yeah, Craig yeah. Cooper, because yeah. he kept everybody in the loop and the contact with how you were doing. So a big thank you from everybody to, to Craig. You know, it's felt about that somebody did die in the race, yes. and, and I think you were pretty close there at the time. Yeah. So if you felt you could share that with us. I'll, um, I'll give you a kind of a brief perspective on it from my own. But as I've said already, um, Chris, with his paramedic head, will, will, will probably be, give you, be sure. able to give you a more sensible and a, and a, and a better technical evaluation of what mm. happened. Um, it was on day two. The first checkpoint was at a sniff under 13 kilometres in. The next bit of the run was 13 kilometres through the largest sand dunes in the Western Sahara. In addition to which the temperatures on that day were the ones which I was referring to earlier, which was into the 60 degrees Celsius. So there were a lot of challenges for all of us on that particular day, not least of which the sun. Chris and I had already passed um, at a checkpoint. There had been an individual suffering from a heart attack, which they had been able to successfully re revive. We weren't right next to that, but pretty close to it. And so we, had, we were aware of that news. And it wasn't much further along on that particular day that I bumped into Chris because we'd become separated at some point and uh, bimbling my way along the dunes and I heard a voice crying out from the bush. Um, the only thing that would have made me more worried is if it had spontaneously combusted, then I really would have run. But oh, you, you had it. Yes, it was calling from God. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Oh, no, my chips really Anyway, it turns out that it was Chris having a little breather under a bush. He was having a wee behind a bush. Uh, well, he was probably doing that as well. Well, anyway, there we go. Yes. And he was going through a particularly tough patch, and, and he says he was grateful for seeing a familiar face. Uh, as was I. And so we then journeyed onwards and it wasn't particularly long after that that this poor French athlete dropped dead. He would have been 20 paces off to our right when he'd collapsed and there were two doctors right with him and they were on top of him quite literally straight away doing all their medical checks and balances and CPR and mouth-to-mouth etc. Whilst we were watching this unfold, uh, Chris being a paramedic went straight off and said I'm Chris, I'm a paramedic, can I help? And um, his help was turned away, and I think rightly so, because perhaps what you didn't need was six hands sure. all trying to administer the same and just getting in each other's way. But when Chris came back to me and walked up to where I was standing, his words to me were something along the lines of, Mac, he's gone, it's too late. It was a very quiet and, and somber, I think, journey for the both of us, um, completing the rest of the dunes um, and completing that day's point as we considered the unfortunate demise of um, this poor athlete and also in relation to where we were, given that we were, well, I was struggling physically 
it's the second time in 35 years that an athlete has dropped dead next to me during a race. The first time was um, in Pietermaritzburg, South Africa. And it took an awful long time for me to feel brave enough to get back and running because of what I'd witnessed. Fortunately, um, well, I was going to say fortunately, that's not true, because when I got back to base that evening, um, a combination of my blistered feet and the impact in the mental of this gentleman's death certainly weighed very heavily upon me, as it did probably a lot of athletes. I know that there were a lot of athletes that withdrew because of the impact so of that. So hit the wall. And I was ready to quit. I went off to the medical tent with my blistered feet and my tags in hand, and I was going to hand them in and come home. I'd, I'd had enough. There were three interesting things that went through my mind there. Um, one was Chris said, Mac, sleep on it. Don't make a decision in the moment. Give yourself time to take a breath and let things settle through. The second thing was I was unable to get signal on my mobile phone so I could um, have a call to my wife and, uh, I don't know, weep and shout and whinge over the phone at her. And the third thing was uh, slightly funnier. Um, I realised that I probably didn't have enough finances set aside to be able to afford three extra nights uh, in the Berber Palace in Wazazat. <laughs> so faced, faced with that concern, I thought, I best just suck it up and go back to bed, otherwise it's going to cost me an arm and a leg. And, and so Walking I continued. Walking back to pound shillings of pence. It oh. certainly did. So with the dark, there is the humour. We can't go through each of the seven no. days, but please don't think we don't know that everyone was agony and indeed a, a life challenge that you'll never forget. We should also say at this point that you and Chris, who we refer to, are going to be doing a talk at Draycott and yes. we'll be able to give those dates nearer the yep. time. I think it's sometime in the new year. So yeah. you'll be able to give, as you said, the two sides of the stories. Yes. But Ian, sadly, <clears throat> like any, um, any radio programme, we, we've got to move it on slightly. So we're coming towards the end now. Now, you said something rather interesting to me about when it came towards the end, you suddenly got, well, I would call it a second wind, but like you suddenly had a bolt of revised energy. I mean, you had obviously pulled yourself, as you explained vividly, through this journey. Uh, could you tell us a bit about that and also what it felt like to actually get to the finish line? At that point, um, we're probably referring to the, the last time stage, which was a full standard marathon, 26.2 miles. On previous days, I'd linked up with um, Lucy, who was a colonel in the British Army and a remarkable woman. Where we were at when we found each other, we were both in need of one another's various support, even if it was just my inane drivel um, helping her to focus on um, anything but which was in front of us. And her constant spot-on guidance with the compass, which protected us from getting lost at night. But either way, we'd reached the point six kilometers from the end of the race. And at that point, we were still together. And my body was feeling good. The blisters had healed to the extent that I felt I could run. And every fiber of my body just needed to expend that energy. Perhaps it was because I recognized I was so close to the end. And at that point, I'd thought, nothing can possibly go wrong from here. And so um, pretty much pinned my ears back and gazelled my way across the last six kilometers of the desert. And of course, finished just yeah, before sunset. So what sunset. did that feel like, Ian? It was absolutely amazing, the combination of just being able to run across the finish and feeling as good as I did. And it was the most unusual experience, but having been able to complete that certainly was, I think exhilarating is, is probably the word, and very emotional at the same time. And I think when, when those two um, emotions bang heads, 
I probably didn't look as cheerful or excited as I was given all that I'd been through and of course my fellow athletes but um, deep down recognizing that um, I'd achieved um, something quite remarkable but I just wasn't quite sure what at the time. And we talked about this when you came in because I said to you in a light-hearted way you know I think you went out of this room two weeks ago you come back into this room two weeks ago I see a changed man here but Ian we have to talk about what it feels like being back home I mean you've run across the Sahara Desert, or part of it, quite a large part of it. You've now come back to being a postman in a beautiful Somerset village. How does that feel? Surreal. It's wonderful to be back home. It's quite odd to be back into normality when just a fortnight ago I was doing something which was quite so opposite to where I'm at right now. I think my, my head is taking time to process all of that which has happened in such a way that it's actually a relief and an oddity in equal measure to be back to normal. But I have to say, largely, um, it's, it's wonderful to be back. Um, it's great to be settling back into um, what I consider normal life. It's great to be allowing the body the time to heal. And it's also wonderful to be starting to think about the next adventure. Gosh, that was another question I was going to ask you. Would you do this again? Because the, the weird thing was, Ian, you know, where I thought I wouldn't see you for months, you know, you'd be under a flannel somewhere. <laughs> a week later, you were running through the village. Going, oh, I'll be very relieved to have you back so that my mail comes back into <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> but Ian, another couple of questions I have to ask you before we bring this inevitably to a close. You were doing this for a purpose. You were doing oh, yes. it to raise money for Hands for Heroes for ex-veterans to, or veterans rather, to have assistance dogs. As yes. you know, I use an assistance yes. dog. I'm not a veteran, I'm yeah. a blind woman, and I know the benefits. Yes. So let's give everybody the total of what you've raised so far. And I know it's ongoing, and we're going to tell people how they can still donate. Tiggy, as you said, yes, and the total is very much ongoing. Chris and I have arrived back to some very unexpected um, sentiments and developments. We've been asked to do talks all over the place. So at those various events, we expect there may be opportunities for contributions to the charity, opportunities to highlight what we were raising funds for, which should roll into the total as it is already. But at the minute, we're looking at heading towards the £9,000 no. mark. Um, and it would wow. be wonderful to, to get up to ten. And that seems like yeah. an, an incredible thing to be able to contribute oh, to the yeah, charity. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, guys, I mean, there's everybody listening here. Ian, remind people how they can donate. I need to update it. And um, the gentleman you referred to earlier, Craig Hooper, between the pair of us, we are keeping the website www.postiesjourney open probably through until March at least. Um, and there's a, just, there's a donate button which links you up to the Just Giving page, Perfect. which is also under a Postie's Journey. And the Dracot Village stores have offered to keep the mechanism for donating there open for the coming months. And as can well. people still give money to post people as they? Yes, and um, posties, and that includes myself, and um, of course you'll recognise that the rest of the the Mary Band. Um, oh, we love the, the Mary Band. Ian, we're going to have to let you go because I know you're doing it literally. I mean, you've become a media star. You left here a postman, you've come back a media star. Oh, and possibly gosh. a man still very much in, in process. But I think so. On behalf of Draycott Diaries, can I thank you so much for talking to us. And, and I have to say on behalf of the villages, you know, we love you, Ian, and well done. Tiggy, um, thank you to you, but the villages um, really doesn't seem like enough. Um, I was just sharing with my wife the other night that um, it's all too often the individuals that stand on the podium that get the medals to stick around their neck. But were it not for the love, support, advice, 
etc. that I'd received from so many folk, particularly in this marvellous village, and I wouldn't be sitting or even standing today. And at moments when I was tired, grumpy, miserable, sad, depressed, tearful, sitting under a bush on a rock on a pile of sand in the Western Sahara, I knew because I knew because I knew that there was a small village in Somerset that had my back. And it was that that made me pick myself up by the bootstraps and head off towards the next checkpoint. And for that, I'm very grateful. So thank you. What a lovely tribute to the village. Ian, thank you. We are all so relieved and happy to have you back safe and well. And may your future challenges be as successful. But please give yourself a break. Okay, a few other people to thank. That's Rob Elliott, who recorded and edited this programme. My brother Hugh, who arranged the music. I was the voice. My name's Tiggy. And God willing, we will be back with another life story in a month's time. (laughs) 